We've been in a sermon series called Time to Move, and you could probably tell even by today's community life that we have lots of ways that we're inviting you to move. One of those is happening uh, kind of as we explore this scripture today. It's kind of a way of moving our thinking, if you will. So we pick up in our series in Acts, in Acts chapter 15. And if you want to open your Bible or your, your smart device and follow along, that's great. Um, this translation that I'm reading will be from the message. It wasn't long before some Jews showed up from Judea insisting that everyone be circumcised. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. The church decided to resolve the matter by sending Paul, Barnabas, and a few others to put it before the apostles and leaders in Jerusalem. After they were sent off and on their way, they told everyone they met as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria about the breakthrough to the non-Jewish outsiders. Everyone who heard the news cheered. It was terrific news. When they got to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas were graciously received by the whole church, including the apostles and leaders. They reported on their recent journey and how God had used them to open things up to the outsiders. Some Pharisees stood up to say their piece. They had become believers, but continued to hold to the hard parody line of the Pharisees. You have to circumcise the pagan converts, they said. You must make them keep the law of Moses. The apostles and leaders called a special meeting to consider the matter. The arguments went on and on, back and forth, getting more and more heated. Then Peter took the floor. Friends, you well know that from early on, God made it quite plain that he wanted the pagans to hear the message of this good news and embrace it. And not in any secondhand or roundabout way, but firsthand, straight from my mouth. And God, who can't be fooled by any pretense on our part, but always knows a person's thoughts, gave them the Holy Spirit, exactly as he gave him to us. He treated the outsiders exactly as he treated us, beginning at the very center of who they were and working from that center outward, cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed him. So why are you now trying to out-God God? Loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too. Don't we believe that we are saved because the master Jesus, amazingly and out of sheer generosity, moved to save us just as he did those from beyond our nation? So what are we arguing about? There was dead silence. No one said a word. With the room quiet, Barnabas and Paul reported matter-of-factly on the miracles and wonders God had done among the other nations through their ministry. The silence deepened. You could hear a pin drop. And Richard breaks the silence. <laughs> Morning, everyone. Glad you could be here to worship with us, both in the sanctuary, upstairs, online. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your week. Thank you, Kendi, for reading. Join me as we pray, and then we'll be looking at this scripture together from Acts chapter 15, which, by the way, if you're using your pew Bible, is page 105 in the New Testament, in case you don't know exactly where everything is. Let me pray. Thanks, Father, uh, that we can gather. Thank you for the day. Thank you for the beauty of the day. Thank you that we're called to uh, leave this building in, in just a few minutes as people of hope, infused with a joy that is beyond our own capacity, uh, in order that we might serve a broken world 
and find in the process of serving our own healing and transformation. Would you teach us toward that end as we open the scriptures, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is my slack line, right? It's a slack line. I love slacklining. It's a great thing to do when you get old. So uh, <laughs> your shoulders aren't so good anymore. You just play on the slack line instead of rock climb. I like that. And what the, the thing about the slack line that makes it a brilliant metaphor for the gospel is this. It's both malleable so that there's room for everyone and it has a breaking point so that it's not a haven for destructive living. If there's too little tension in a slack line, it's worthless, right? No tension, I can walk on it, it's just not very fun. <laughs> too much tension, it breaks. No tension, salt without saltiness is how Jesus said it. In other words, we have a community, but we're not distinct in any way. Too much tension, I know a guy in England or no, of a guy in England, who started a church, it grew, and then his demands became more and more exclusive regarding the true nature of the gospel, so that by the time this man was in his 80s, just before he died, he would only take communion with himself, believing himself to be the only one who had the true gospel. That's too much tension, right? <laughs> too much tension, not enough tension, how do we find the way? Well, slackline is a beautiful picture of Allowing for flexibility while maintaining tension. Let me show you what I mean. This is what I love about the gospel. It absorbs our falls over and over again and transforms us into people of grace. That's this guy. That's why all of you have to go slacklining.
Or if not that, embrace Christ. Let me explain what I mean. Acts unfolds, the book of Acts, in the midst of the Roman Empire, and Caesar in the first century had made this bold claim that Caesar was the most uniting force on the planet. So that you had people under the umbrella of the Roman Empire living in Africa, living in Asia, living in Europe, and Caesar could rightfully say, all of them are under my rule, therefore I'm the most uniting force on the planet. And yet, when you dig around under the surface, this is what you find. Though everyone was under the rule of Caesar, it wasn't a rule of grace and peace and joy. It was, a, it was an authoritarian, dictatorial, fear-based rule. In other words, you could enjoy the peace of Rome, yes, if you were male, if you're a property owner, if you're a citizen, if you worshiped Caesar, you had power and peace and joy. None of which were available, though, to women, slaves, people in debt, immigrants, orphans, those who spoke against the empire. You spoke against the empire, you disappeared <laughs> and found yourself hung on a cross. So, Vast uniting power, sort of, but it's a bit of a ruse, actually, because it's united uh, due to authoritarianism, uh, or authoritarianism and threat of violence. So along comes Christianity, and the Apostle Paul and Jesus make this bold claim that the gospel, the good news found in Christ, envisions at the end of history one vast family gathered together at the same table under the lordship of Christ— Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, rich, poor, men, women, people of differing views. And the question on the table is this this morning, is the gospel actually a uniting force or is it window dressing like Caesar's empire? And it's a pretty important question because there's a debate here in this text between Jews and Gentiles, both of whom claim uh, faith in Christ regarding the true nature of the gospel. In other words, uh, what do I have to do to be in the club? And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, this is what we read. There was a great dissension, a huge argument among people of faith regarding whether or not circumcision was a precondition for enjoying faith in Christ. And the argument makes sense at a level. If I'm Jewish, I grew up with centuries of history teaching me that the covenant of circumcision is required to be in the family of faith. Genesis chapter 17, first book of the Bible, verse 14, God says this, a person who is uncircumcised shall be cut off from the people of God. Seems simple enough, right? Circumcision required, case closed. Here's the problem. Paul and Barnabas in this story had been traveling among Gentiles who are not circumcised, and they had demonstrated to Paul and Barnabas all the marks of real faith. Acts 13, verse 48, Gentiles rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, praying, many believing, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So, get this, a division among Christ followers regarding what constitutes true faith. Who knew that could ever happen? Seems like a meaningless issue, except for three things. In this text, we see people of faith are still divided to this very day regarding who's in and who's out. We are, we're divided. And in the end, the truth of it is none of us completely know. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, quit judging anyway. It's not your place. But we who are charged with spiritual leadership are called to discern 
who to welcome into full fellowship as genuine believers. And so churches are still dealing with similar matters today. Who's in and who's out? And every generation has its own issue that elevates to the top as the main argument. In one generation, it's divorce. In another, it's women in leadership. In another culture, it might be the use or non-use of alcohol. It might be the version of the Bible you use. It might be what movies you go to. It might be how you dress. But there's always an issue on the table saying, do this and you're welcome. Do this and you're out. There's always an issue. And as you well know, there's an issue today as well. And of course, because of these discussions, very large tents among some communities of faith, tiny tents among others, how does Bethany deal with such questions? How flexible is the line that is the gospel? It's a question. And the second thing that makes this a very important text is the manner in which these divisions are settled here, very encouraging, providing a template for all of us in the room regarding how to deal with conflict. Because what you find in this text is not a power play. Peter doesn't stand up and say, hello, I'm the founder of the church. Jesus called me the rock. My word goes. He doesn't do that. Neither do the Pharisees say, well, you may be the rock, but hello, you're a fisherman. And we've got PhDs. We know the text better. Our word goes. What you find here in this text as a template for settling conflict Three things, prayer, big ears, small mouths. Try it in your marriage. Could work. Prayer, big ears, small mouths. I'm listening. I'm not rushing to judgment. I'm speaking. I'm praying. And we're coming to a conclusion. And then the other thing that we come to discover here in this text is that by reading the book of Acts, we learn that conflict is actually normal. There's always conflict. Because whenever two people get together, there's conflict. Uh, that's why I love living alone. When I'm alone, I get along with everyone in the room. <laughs> and my decisions are final and right and inspired and beautiful. And no one argues with me. Isn't that awesome? C.S. Lewis says that that's his version of hell, actually, in The Great Divorce. Hell is this. You get everything you want. And every time you get everything you want, you move farther and farther away from other people. <laughs> because you don't have to settle conflict anymore. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if we could only gather around people who think the way that we do, act the way that we do, spend money the way that we do, make decisions the way that we do. No, it wouldn't be that wonderful at all. It would be hell. <laughs> and yet many of us create our own hells by creating self-referential communities that are so narrow that the only people who are welcome are, who are, are, are people just like us. That's not God's vision. It's not the gospel. So you find conflict all throughout the book of Acts because people are trying to have a big tent. In chapter 5, some believers are lying about their level of generosity. In chapter 6, the Jews and Greeks are in conflict regarding uh, the amount of food that widows are being given. In chapter 7, establishment Judaism is arguing with new Christ followers regarding the, the role of the temple in true worship. In chapter 8, the question on the table is, can Africans and eunuchs be welcomed into the family of faith? Chapter 9, can those who are persecuting Christ followers be welcomed into the faith? Can soldiers who are charged with occupying the land of the Jews enter in? Chapter 10, can we eat clean and unclean meat? Chapter 11, debate, debate, debate. If you've watched the fiddler on the roof, you see this guy, and he's marrying off his daughters, and every time the boundary is being pushed, right? It's like, when will this break? And do you remember Tavia and Fiddler on the Roof? Where does it stop, he asks. Like, how generous is God, really? Uh, uh, some would say, 
We don't have arguments like this anymore. All the answers are already in the Bible. <laughs> I'd say the answers aren't in the Bible. The principles are in the Bible. And the difference is vast, actually. Principles regarding how to deal with the reality that the gospel's flexible enough for everyone, but absolute enough that all of us are called to continual repentance. You get that? Flexible enough for everyone, but absolute enough that all of us are called to continual repentance. Some make it so flexible, there's no need to repent ever. And when that happens, the community loses its sense of identity and distinctive. Some make it so absolute that in the end, I'm not conforming to Christ, but only to a cultural expression of Christ. So the question on the table this morning is this. What principles can we learn about conflict that are applicable in our own everyday lives? And the three observations that we see here this morning... If we understand them, they will enable us to live in conflict even within our own families and communities with grace, humility, and full presence. It's a big deal. That's a big gift. So three observations. Conflict leads us back again and again to the essence of the good news, the gospel. That's what conflict does. Second, one of the most profound fruits of the gospel, the good news, is its uniting capacity. But the uniting requires change on the part of all of us. And third, this gospel leads to flourishing for both individuals and the community, both Jews and Gentiles, for all of us, flourishing. So let's look at these three observations together in the moments that we have, beginning with this. Conflict leads us back again and again to the essence of the gospel. If you read Acts 15 and verse 1, you see it. Some men became, uh, came down from Judea and said, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas should go to Jerusalem to settle the matter. But here's the key word, great dissension, right? There's great dissension. And so look at verse 5. When they gathered, some of the sect of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. And others said no. And then verse 7 much debate. So dissension, two opposing views, much debate. Much debate. And I, I love that the way that this is settled is, as I already shared, big ears, small mouth, and prayer. A lot of listening going on here. Twice in the text, you, you, you see this. They stopped speaking and it was silent. And Kendi ended her reading with, you could hear a pin drop. Now, like, when does that happen? How often am I listening to someone and while they're speaking, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say in response? That's not very Christ-like, actually. But these people here are demonstrating this beautiful fruit. I'm actually listening, to quote Frazier, if you watch that show. I'm listening. Not judging. Not categorizing. And when I hear you begin pontificating about guns, I'm not putting you in a, in a political category or your eating habits or your sexual preferences. I'm listening. There's a great dissension, but listening. So, here's what we see here. Two things matter that are the essence of the gospel, and we see this here in this particular text. We see that fruit matters and grace matters. And we're gonna, let me explain what I mean. Here's why we see that fruit matters. They have this debate. And so if I could call the front row Gentiles, just for a minute here, and they're new to the faith, and they're, now, they're in a predominantly Jewish community, and some people stand up and say, unless they're circumcised, they can't be in our club. That's really what they're saying, right? And then here's the deal. 
Peter stands up and look at what he says in verse 7. He says, friends, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth, by my mouth, Peter's mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe and God who knows the heart testified to them and he gave them the Holy Spirit just as he gave us the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you what Peter is actually saying here. Peter is saying, look, we traveled around and I'm telling you with my own eyes, I have seen the fruit of people worshiping God who are not keeping the Old Testament law in the certain way that you think that they should. I've seen it. And here's why that's significant. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 18 to 20, that if you're really interested in knowing the status of someone and the degree to which you enjoy fellowship with someone, if you really want to get along, here's the criteria. What did Jesus say? By their what? Fruit you will know. By their fruit. What's that mean? Well, look at what he doesn't say. By their doctrinal statement, you will know whether they're in or out. He doesn't say that. By their capacity to defend and articulate uh, the resurrection, virgin birth, deity of Christ, then you'll know. Let me check it off. Do you believe the way I do? You're in. No, that's not, he's not saying any of that. Here's what he says. You want to know? Here's how you know. Look at the fruit. Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness? Is there generosity? Is there true listening? Is there power? Is there service? Is there crossing social divides? When you see that, you see the gospel. Fruit. Because, hear me, fruit is the whole point of following Jesus. When we stand up and, and hold up a, a sign, and we never do this, but if we did, and it says on it, Jesus saves, it creates a reaction on the part of people Kind of like this. Oh, I know what he means. He means that, uh, you know, when I, when I die, instead of rotting in hell forever, I get to go to heaven. Jesus saves me. Well, and it's a true statement, but it is not the point of saves. The word sozo in the Greek, which is the word save, is this vast word that means in many categories, saved from this to that. In other words, when you come to Christ, you're not looking for a ticket to heaven. You're looking for transformation. I'm saved from greed to generosity from sexual addiction to intimacy, from loneliness and self-pity to relationship and community, from discontent and the subsequent addictions and acquisitions that drive my life to contentment and community, from sorrow to joy, from cynicism to hope. I'm moving you. That's the gospel, right? And, 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 and so if that's the gospel, then when I meet someone who says they love Jesus and they show fruit of the Spirit then my answer is this. Yes, you love Jesus. Welcome. I, oh, I, by the way, I don't agree with you regarding how you're going to vote. Or, you know, we could argue a little bit about inerrancy, but you love Jesus. Welcome. We can have differing views on many different things, and yet what we're looking for, the criteria for fellowship, is love for Christ and fruit. That's all, says Peter. It's very powerful. Very generous, actually. Creates a pretty big tent. And then here's the other thing we learn from this particular text. Peter says, not only does fruit matter, and I see the fruit. So they don't need to be circumcised because I see joy. I see generosity. I see giving. And then, not only does fruit matter, but Peter says grace matters, and here's, here's the way in which he says it. Look at verse 10. Jesus, Peter says, look, I've seen the fruit, therefore, verse 10, why would we put God to the test by placing upon the neck of these disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to bear? 
Pretty interesting words. Why do you put God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of these new believers, which we have not been able to bear? What's this, what is a yoke here? Is the yoke circumcision? No. Circumcision is just a small slice, and that is not supposed to be a pun, but it is. <laughs> it's not supposed to be a pun. It's a small slice of a much larger issue. Because here's the, here's the large issue. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, hey, can, I, can we name the elephant in the room? Like we gather here, we sing, we open our Bibles, we pray, we give, we serve, but let's be honest, who in the room keeps the law perfectly? Who in the room? And it's a, it's a rhetorical question. Peter says, why would we place a yoke upon their neck that we can't keep? Why would we demand that people keep the law as a precondition for being in God's story when none of us keep the law? That's what Peter's asking. <laughs> and that's pretty liberating because what Peter's saying is, hey, can we relax? None of us keep the law. So why are we telling everybody else to keep the law when we don't keep the law? And Paul will go on to unpack this thoroughly in his letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 3, where Paul says, people driving by who don't give God a second thought, they don't keep the law. People who come within these walls, they open the text, they talk about the law, they talk about ethics, they preach it, uh, but they don't keep it perfectly. And the Jews who claim to have a special favor with God in Romans chapter 3, they also don't keep the law. So that at the end of Romans chapter 3, Paul says, who keeps the law? The non-religious, the religious, the ultra-religious, and here's the answer, nobody keeps the law. And that's not intended to indict, it's intended to show us that the basis for our being together here is not that we're all squeaky clean, and that's very important. Somebody came, said to me once, after attending Bethany one time, right, they came one time, and, they, and then and they, I said, how was it? And they said, oh, I mean, it was fun and... It was a little creepy, they said. That was her word, creepy. I said, what do you mean creepy? Oh, well, you know, everybody's so well-dressed and thin and athletic and educated. Just felt like, I just felt like an outsider because I have issues. You'll be comforted to know this is what I said. You don't know them well enough. Stick around. <laughs> Stick around. Why? Let me just say... Do a survey. Don't raise your hands. Who has issues in the room? Anybody have issues in the room? Yeah. Any sexual brokenness floating around in these pews? Any secret addictions? Any doubts? Any, you know, excess materialism and you've got credit card debt coming out of your ears and you don't know what to do with it? Any anger? Any cynicism in the room? Yeah. I mean, all of us have stuff. And what... Peter is saying here is, hey, we have stuff. So why are we saying to them, they can't have any stuff? Are we all welcome in the same way? And of course the answer is yes. Some of us are actually terrified by this depth of grace. We're afraid that we're giving people license to sin. <laughs> but actually the good news of the gospel isn't that we're given license to, to not change. The good news of the gospel is that we're given power to change. In other words, we're given power to move. That's sozo. To move from this to that. To hope, to mercy, to wisdom, to peace. We're afraid of grace only if we reduce the gospel to a ticket to heaven. 
Because if, it all, if all it is is a ticket to heaven, then I rightly ask the question, well, what do I have to do to get my ticket? And that's all I care about. But it is never offered by Jesus as a ticket to heaven. Come to me, receive me as your personal Savior, so that when you die, you know, you know that you go to heaven. It's not even the point. Jesus says to the contrary, come if you're weary. Come if you're burnt out. Come if you're afraid. Come if you're lonely. In other words, come if you have issues. Ah, now I'm listening. Because I have issues. Some of you know I share this sometimes, that I struggle a little bit with anxiety, feeling overwhelmed with my life. Feeling there's more to do than time to do it. Feeling like I'm not actually very good at what I do. And, that, you know, if, any, if people knew, then no one would show up here on Sundays. You know, like anxiety. And so I, you know, just recently was reading again the story of Jesus in a boat and there's a storm and Jesus sleep in the boat, in a storm. I would not be, I can't even sleep in my bed. Jesus sleep in a boat, in a storm. It's totally chill about it, he's relaxed. And the disciples end up, you know, shaking him away. Hey, Jesus, you know, wake up. Don't you care, the boat's gonna sink. And then Jesus calms the sea with a word and then he goes, I mean, humorously and mysteriously, oh, you guys don't have any faith at all. And then he's just back out again. I love that story. Asleep in the boat. Anybody have anxiety in the room? I, I mean, I do. So here's the gospel. I'm gonna, Richard, I'm going to move you from anxiety to peace. It'll start uh, with your pulse going down, and then, and then you're going to sleep in your bed. And then one of these days, you'll be able to sleep in the boat too, just like me. Because I, Christ, have discovered it is delightful, Richard, to take up residence within you, (laughs) empowering you to be who you could never be on your own. That's the gospel. And it's precisely available for people who know that they don't have it all together. So if that's you this morning, good news. You're not looking for a ticket. The essence of the gospel is this. Jesus wanting to empower you to live like Jesus so that your life overflows with peace and love and generosity so that you can sleep in the boat. No greater burden is what Peter asks. Why would we try and out-God God here and make these people more religious than we are? It's a rhetorical question. We can't do it. No, we can't do it. Our foundation in the gospel is a foundation of unconditional acceptance. We just come to Christ knowing that we need transformation. That's the gospel. I'm broken. I need what Jesus has. I come. And I don't just come once. I come over and over again for the rest of my life. I'm moving. Right now I'm moving from anxiety to peace. Maybe you're moving from lust to purity. Maybe you're moving from greed to generosity. Maybe you're moving from from, uh, fear to hope or from anger to patience. But everybody needs to move. And so Jesus says, come to me and I'll move you. That's the gospel. The essence of following Jesus is believing that Jesus not only loves you, but wants to transform you so that you become light in a dark world, hope in a despairing world. And that's all that Peter's saying. He's saying, hey, these people in the front row here, doesn't matter if they're circumcised or not, they are demonstrating the fruit of transformation. We have to let them in. That's Acts 15. And it leads then to a second observation, which is that one of the most profound fruits of the gospel is its uniting capacity, more than Caesar. The uniting 
Power of the gospel, profound. So look at Peter speaks. And when Peter stopped speaking, don't you love it? All the people kept silent. They're listening. And then, when, when, and then there's a moment of reflection. And then when they're done speaking, J- James, another disciple of Jesus, stands up. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Amos. And what he says, basically, when he quotes Amos, is, look, a long time ago, God said that the Gentiles in the front row were going to be welcome into the club. That's my paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. Gentiles are in. Therefore, says James... It's my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Now, this is very interesting here. So listen as I unpack this with you. James explains always it was in God's master plan to have one vast family made up of all kinds of different people, right? Uh, A tribe of different nations. So the question that arises in such a setting is what will this family look like? I mean, if it's a, if it's a family made up of Jews and Gentiles, then do all the Gentiles need to look Jewish or do, do all the Jews need to adopt the values of the Gentiles? If it's Democrats and Republicans, then like what does that look like? Do we, do we all have to think alike and vote alike? Do we need more donkeys or more elephants on our t-shirts or something like that? Like what do we do? If it's drinkers and dry, what do we do? If it's a, a community made up of low-fat and paleo, what do we do? <laughs> if, it's, if it's black and white, if it's rich and poor, if it's divorced and remarried and divorced and not remarried and never divorced, what do we do? Like, how do we all get along when we hold some profoundly different views on different things? And the, here's the answer. The new community becomes a unique expression that accommodates both Jews and Gentiles. So who needs to ch- uh, change, the Jew or the Gentile? Here's the answer, yes. Right? I mean, it is the answer in the text. Because to the Jews, James gives this word. Don't trouble the front row with circumcision. Don't trouble the Gentiles with circumcision. They're in. (laughs) They've already demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. Welcome them completely. And then, but send them a letter telling them not to eat meat uh, that is strangled with blood or commit fornication. Now, why would he say that if you're already in? Here's why. (laughs) Because they're going into a community predominantly Jewish And those two things are visible expressions outwardly uh, that have millennia of kind of repulsive cultural overtones. Does this make sense? So if they're coming into a community, all he's saying to the Gentiles is be sensitive to the community into which you're coming. And it's a good word, and it's a practical word, and it applies all down through history. Later, we see that the, the, the issue of eating meat even goes away in First Corinthians chapter 8. But I'm telling you, anytime you cross a cultural divide, there will always be issues like this. And the issues come about because God's vision is always for a community with no dividing walls. And so if there are no dividing walls, then people from the outside are welcome in. But when they come in, they, they bring who they are to the table, Right? And so what's enjoined on them is sensitivity to the prevailing ethic of the, of the community, and what's, what's enjoined upon the, uh, the prevailing community is welcoming them with open arms. And this is, it works, it's very practical. I'll give you a few illustrations. I have a German friend who preaches in the States, and uh, last summer he went to Texas to preach, and uh, uh, in Germany, I'll just say it this way, there's no NRA in Germany, the gun laws are dramatically different in Germany than in the United States as a whole, let alone Texas, right? 
So he preach, he's preaching in a church, and then uh, the person gets up to give announcements and says, hey, there's a class so that all of you can be licensed to carry your weapons to church. And I really ask that you all take the class because we want every, we, to be safe here, we want to all carry weapons, right? Now, this isn't a political statement because whatever you think, fine, you think it, it's okay. But my friend from Germany, like when he's hearing this, are you kidding me? Here's what's going on inside his head. Like, is it safe to stand up and preach in here? This is crazy. So, when he gets up to preach, what does he do? Hey, before we get into, you know, Romans 8, I'd like to just say a few things about guns. No. He gets up and he preaches Christ. Why? Because he sees in this community with whom he has a profound disagreement about guns, he sees love, he sees joy, he sees hospitality, he sees generosity, and he knows this. Though I don't agree on this one particular issue, we're one family in Christ. So let's get on with it and be a family. That's one example. And then I have a friend who lives in Texas, and he shows up at a meeting that I'm at in Germany where we have the celebration dinner, and we're all in ministry, and we're all drinking beer and wine and schnapps except my friend from Texas who doesn't drink alcohol at all. And you know what's going on in his head? (laughs) But he doesn't say anything. He rejoices with us as he drinks his (laughs) 7-Up. And then I go to Africa, and you see how I preach. This is the best I'm ever dressed. (laughs) This is my Sunday fine, right? (laughs) And And I go there, and I realize, oh, it's never denim. It's slacks, and it's a dress shirt, and it's a tie. Even though it's way hotter than here, it's a tie. Do I like that? I don't like that. But it's the way it is. And then, you know, after service, you go to the pastor's house, not for a glass of wine, but for Fanta soda. Do you know Fanta? It's this orange drink that's made mostly of sugar. And, you know, when you're giving the offering, like here, when the plate comes to me, I pass it on because I give online. Automatic withdrawal, actually. It's easy, by the way. You should try it. (laughs) 10% of your thing, and you never see it. It's almost painless until, you know, the statement comes, and you go, ooh. What I could have... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, I have a giving habit. But in Africa, so you're in the worship service. Here I have a sweating in here. I got a tie on and this dress clothing. And everybody comes up one at a time. And there's a basket on the stage. And they put their money in. And then they do a dance around the offering. And I'm watching. It's happening. One, two, three. It's, kind of, it's my turn and here's my, you know, and yet I, and so I go up, and I put my money in, I do my little jig, you know, and I go down, and then I go have soda with the, with, the, with the pastor afterwards in the heat of the sun with my tie still on, and I say, do you know what your triglycerides must be like with that drink and that drink and that heat, man, that's going to kill you? No, I don't say that, actually. Because the gospel's big enough for all of this, or it should be, Because the one thing that all of us share in common in every one of those stories is this. (laughs) We all believe that Jesus is changing the world. We all believe it. We believe that the end of history is this. Christ reigning so that there is no more, and hear me, no more war, 
poverty, addiction, human trafficking, racism, loneliness, disease, it all ends. And because of this, we make Christ the focus. And can I say this? Of course I can. I'm up here. <laughs> Not Christ plus anything. Christ. Christ. He's our hope. Not Bethany Community Church. Not Richard's preaching. Not a particular ethical construct or denomination. Christ is our hope. And you might misread this as saying the gospel then is worthless because it doesn't have an ethic. Oh, it has an ethic. Here's the ethic. Jesus is the ethic. Be the presence of Christ. That's your calling. And this leads, of course, to the last observation. It leads to flourishing, actually, for both individuals in the community who are Jewish and those who are Gentile. And what's key here to understand is this word yoke in verse 10. Uh, Why do you put God to the test, says Peter, by placing a yoke upon these new believers that neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to bear. A yoke uh, is, a, is a tool that you put on an animal to control the animal if the animal's going to plow a field or something like that. And so when you put a yoke on an animal, it's this, it becomes this heavy burden, and the heavier, the heavier it is, uh, the more that the life of the animal becomes a burden. Of course, that makes sense. More weight on your back, more work. That's why... Some of us who backpack are ultra-minimalists, right? And that's me. When I'm, when I'm traveling, I want to travel as light as possible. So if there's a book and I'm going to read two chapters, I'm like this. <coughs> Get rid of the rest. Two chapters. I'm taking it with me. Toothbrush. Saw off the, you know, who needs a handle anyway? I only want the brush. And it's all good. Like as light as possible. Why? Who wants it? Who needs a burden that you don't need? This is all Peter's saying. Like, why are you turning your faith into a burden? And the law was a burden. Not just circumcision. Circumcision is part of the larger law. And by the larger law, by the way, I don't mean the Ten Commandments. I mean all 613 commandments in the Old Testament that are the details of what to wear, what to eat, when to work, when not to work, what to say, what to do when your animal is wounded, everything. And these were then interpreted and became over 1,500 interpretive amendments. Are you with me? You know, burden. And Peter says, get rid of all of it and have a new ethic. I'm with Christ and following Jesus. Pretty lightweight. Pretty liberating. But let's be honest, not much has changed. In many communities of faith, we're loading people down. Drink this, not that. Wear this, not that. Watch these movies, not those. But if you think then, oh, well, I'll just skip religion entirely. That'll make me free. Think again. (laughs) I mean, we live in a culture that has a mantra of upward mobility that defines almost all of us, both the haves and the have-nots. And because of that mantra the overwhelming feeling that we pastors encounter on a regular basis is this, the phrase, not enough. I'm not enough. Or I don't have enough time. Or enough money. Or I'm not thin enough. Or good-looking enough. Or smart enough. Or educated enough. I don't have enough house. I don't have enough sex. I don't have enough, I don't have enough power. I don't have enough influence. I don't have enough. And we're always wanting more. And in our frenzy to get more, we're burnt out. 
And so Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 11, and this is what he says. He says, hey, are any of you weary? And it's a good question this morning. Because maybe for some of us in the room, the answer is yes. Anybody caring too much? Probably. Anxiety? Secret addiction? Alienating loneliness? Hate your job? Here's Jesus. Come to me, and he says three things. Take my yoke, learn from me, you'll find rest. What a great promise. Take my yoke, says Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Jesus' yoke was God's desire that Jesus be a man of love and service and obedience. So make that your desire. Love people. When this service ends, seek to be fully present with every person. When this service ends, go up and go sign up for Serve Day so that you can, in this city, impart hope in some practical way. Take the yoke. And then what does Jesus say? Learn of me. Christ followers are called to learn about Jesus. Make it a lifelong goal to grow closer and closer in your friendship with Christ. And then there's a promise. Take my yoke, learn of me, and here's the promise. You'll find rest. In the... In the land of never enough, the promise of rest, stunning, at least to me. I'm reading my Bible this morning as I'm prone to do in the mornings as I have a nice cup of French press right next to me. And, and then I'm praying, and as I'm praying this morning, I have some burdens, right? And I'm thinking about a lot of things that I have to do and a paper that I need to write and a presentation that I need to make and my sermon for this morning. And there's just, there are many things. And I'm praying, and then... I hear this word from God, and here's the word. Richard, you're complete in Christ. And I go, yeah, yeah, whatever. I, look, I've got a big load here. Would you help me with this? And then I hear it again. You're complete in Christ. And then I said, yeah, but I need help with, I need strength. I need provision. I, you know, you're complete in Christ. You're complete in Christ. And I hear it. And finally, I hear it so powerfully. It's bathing me, and there's tears in my eyes because I recognize this. If I don't do ever another thing, Christ loves me infinitely, unconditionally. How powerful is that? Enough. Pretty flexible. And as I fall, and I do, I land and I'm transformed into a person of strength and grace. That's the gospel. You want to know Christ? You want to join me in the adventure? Today's the day. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much that you call us to be people of hope in a world desperately needing hope, people of courage in a world of fear, people of joy in a world of sorrow and anxiety. Give us ears to hear grace to respond. May we know you as friend. May we know you and your yoke. And may we know your peace. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's worship together. And I think there will be prayer team folk up here later on if you need to pray with someone about a burden you're carrying or a transformation you want to see in your own life. Let's worship.